0: I believe that it would be a good idea for us, it's such a solemn topic that uh, we should have a word of prayer to ask the Lord to be with us. So let's just bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Father in heaven as we study this uh, momentous principle this afternoon, principle number nine on our syllabus, we ask Father for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. Not only in our study here but I ask that when uh, this series is broadcast on television, that it might be useful to those who are sincere of heart, that they might be willing to hear the truth and to receive it into the heart and into the mind. We plead for your presence and we know that you will be with us because you have promised and we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Okay let's go in our syllabus to page 22 and we are going to look at principle number nine. And Principle number nine states, God's Israel today is to be understood spiritually and globally. In other words, Israel is no longer in the Middle East, God's true Israel is worldwide and it is a spiritual Israel. Now in Bible prophecy, God's Israel is to be understood symbolically and universally. God has only one people in all ages, those who receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. However, there are two stages to this, the Old Testament saints accepted Christ who was promised, whereas those of us who live in this period of history accept Christ who has fulfilled the promise. But Christ is still the center of both periods, both Old and New Testament. When God chose Abraham, it was with the purpose of bringing the blessing to all the nations of the earth. Is that true? Absolutely! In Genesis chapter 12 God says, In you you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It was God's plan to bless all of the nations of the earth, not only one nation. In order to fulfill His plan, God chose twelve individual men who became the founders of national Israel. These men then multiplied into the twelve tribes that became the nation of Israel. God placed Israel at the strategic center of three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa, so that passers-through would learn the gospel and go back to their nations with the light that they had received. The gospel was preached in literal types and ceremonies that pointed to every aspect of the saving work of the Messiah. But Israel failed in its mission. Before the Babylonian captivity, they embraced the pagan practices of the surrounding nations. And after the captivity, they isolated themselves from the nations. When Israel failed to a great degree to fulfill their mission, Jesus came anyway and spiritually fulfilled the literal types and ceremonies of the Old Testament system. He retraced in Himself the history of Israel, and redeemed the history of Israel. Jesus then chose twelve Jewish men as the founders of the Christian church. And sent them out to preach the good news about the Messiah who had come. By their preaching the twelve then multiplied into a great nation, and the mission of that nation was to reach the entire world with the message of Jesus in order to prepare the world for the second coming. So God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church is the same plan. The only difference is that In the Old Testament, the twelve men and the twelve tribes were to prepare Israel for the first coming. Whereas now, the twelve men that founded the Christian church and all of the nations that come from them, their role is to prepare the world for the second coming of Christ. But the bottom line is that both were called to bring people to Jesus Christ. The purpose for Israel and for the church is the same to preach the gospel so that the world can be saved. Revelation 12 clearly reveals that God has only one Israel, the woman, who exists in two stages, but nevertheless is the same woman. Now what we want to do next is to take a look at the material that is titled Three Stages of Israel's History three stages of Israel's history. That's what we're going to dedicate the rest of this hour to in our study. We of course have to begin at Mount Sinai, because at Mount Sinai is where God contracted a covenant with Israel, that's where the covenant relationship officially began. God announced to Abraham that he was going to make a covenant, but the covenant itself was ratified at Mount Sinai between God and Israel. Let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 19 and verses 1 through 6. Exodus 19 verses 1 through 6 It says there, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain, and Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, So Moses goes up, and now God is going to deliver a message to Moses. Notice what God says to Moses, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to Myself. I took you away from Pharaoh and now you are mine, is what God is saying. Now I want you to notice something interesting, God says you are mine, but Israel had to agree didn't they? And so we find in verse 5 God's saying now therefore if, is this a conditional covenant? It is a conditional covenant, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant then, if then, notice, then you shall be a special treasure to Me above all people, for all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. God is saying, Israel I want to make a covenant with you. I want to get married with you. Jeremiah 31 says that God married Israel at Mount Sinai. God says, I want to to marry you, I want you to be my wife. Now the question is, how would Israel respond to this call of God? Exodus 19 verses 7 and 8 tells us that Moses came down from the mountain and he delivered to Israel the message that God had given him to give to the people. It says there in Exodus 19, 7 and 8, So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. Is there a covenant now? Yes there is. So what does Moses do? Moses goes up to God and he says the people agree. Notice the last part of verse 8. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord, so was a covenant made at Mount Sinai? Yes, God says I want to enter a covenant relationship with you, do you accept? And Israel says, I do. This was a marriage covenant between God and His people. And then of course God gave His law, His moral law, and then God gave the ceremonial system. To teach Israel about the plan of salvation. And when the tabernacle had been built and had been established and had been sanctified in Exodus chapter 40 in verse 34, we find a momentous event. It says there in Exodus 40 verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Do you remember that God had said, you shall build me a sanctuary, that I may what? That I might dwell among them. Well, here's the fulfillment. Israel made a covenant, so God says, now I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell in their midst. So the Shekinah glory entered the temple, a symbol of God's presence with Israel. Now after the pilgrimage through the desert when, people, when the people had entered the promised land, a more permanent structure was built. Solomon built the temple and I want you to notice by the way this is happening around the year 960 BC and Solomon said God needs to have a more permanent house because now we are permanently settled in Canaan. Before we were a nomadic people, wandering in the wilderness, but now we're settled in the land, so we have to build God a solid temple and a much nicer temple than just a tent. And so we find that Solomon built this beautiful temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And then I want you to notice what happened when the temple was finished. First Kings chapter eight and verses ten and eleven. 1 Kings 8, 10 and eleven. And it came to pass, when the priests came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not continue ministering, because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Did the Shekinah enter the temple built by Solomon? Yes. Yes. Had the Shekinah entered the tabernacle in the wilderness? Yes. God now says we are in a covenant relationship, And I will dwell in your midst. And so the Shekinah, the visible Shekinah glory dwells in the temple. Now the question is, did Israel live up to their end of the bargain? No. The next 800 years after God chose Israel at Mount Sinai was a story of constant rebellion and disobedience to God. In fact, we find this clearly revealed in 2nd Chronicles 36 and verses 14 through 16 where between the time when God made His marriage covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai and when the Babylonian captivity took place, Israel simply was unfaithful to her husband time and again and she fornicated with the surrounding nations. It says there in 2nd Chronicles 36 verse 14 Moreover all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations, remember that's a key word, according to all the abominations of the nations, and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers, did God warn them and try to call them back to their marriage covenant? Yes. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by His messengers rising up early and sending them because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. How did Israel react? But they mocked the messengers of God, despised His words and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was no remedy, which eventually led to the Babylonian captivity. Now notice how this apostasy is described in Ezekiel 16 and verse 15. Ezekiel 16 and verse 15, God is speaking to His people, to His wife and He says, But you trusted in your own beauty, played what? The harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. And so Israel was unfaithful to her husband. And so God says, I am going to perform a work of judgment. And this work of judgment is described in the book of Ezekiel particularly chapter 9. Now in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 4 we find that God is coming from the north in a chariot, this is a symbolic vision, and the reason He's coming to Jerusalem is because He is going to judge Jerusalem because of all of the abominations that they were committing at this time. In fact, In Ezekiel chapter 8 and verses 16 and 17 we find the climax of all of the abominations, which was the fact that they were worshiping the sun god. In other words they had assimilated all of the pagan practices of the surrounding nations. They were committing abominations that would eventually lead to desolation, two key words in Daniel chapter 9. Now Let's notice how Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 4 reads, Ezekiel says, Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its midst, like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. God is coming in His fiery chariot to Jerusalem, He's actually coming to the temple, and in the temple He is going to judge Israel for their abominations. However not everyone in Israel was committing the abominations, so it was necessary to perform a work of judgment to separate the faithful from the unfaithful. Let's read Ezekiel chapter 9 and verses 1 through 6. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, incidentally this is happening around the year 592 BC, Jerusalem would be destroyed in 586, just six years later Jerusalem would be destroyed. So you have the abominations that led to the desolation of Jerusalem just six years later. So it says, Then He called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with his deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen, and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar, that is in the court. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark On the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. So is there a group in the city who is faithful to the Lord? Yes, and a judgment of separation needs to be made, because there is a group of faithful individuals that will not be destroyed when the city is destroyed. But now notice, after it speaks about the separation in the temple, We are told in verse 5, To the others He said in My hearing, Go after Him, through the city, and kill. Do not let your eye spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children, and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark, and begin at My sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. So was there a judgment of separation? Did the Shekinah glory come to the temple for the work of judgment? It most certainly did, before the destruction came. Now I want you to notice that when this judgment comes to an end, after the Lord, the Shekinah glory comes to the temple to perform this work of judgment, this work of separation, then the Shekinah glory departs the temple. I want you to remember these details. We're going to come back to them again with regards to the destruction of Jerusalem for the second time in the year 70. Notice what we find in Ezekiel 10 and verse 19. And the cherubim lifted their wings. This is the same chariot that came to the temple for the work of judgment. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them. And they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, that's the entrance to the Lord's house by the way, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. At this point is the glory of the Lord still present at the temple, it's on the eastern edge of the temple, but then something happens, the glory departs the temple, and for a lingering period of time it's, it sits upon the Mount of Olives east of the city of Jerusalem. Notice Ezekiel chapter 11 verses 22 and 23, it says, So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city. Which mountain is on the east side of the city of Jerusalem? It is the Mount of Olives. And so the glory, glorious presence of the Lord that has gone into the temple and performed a work of separation or judgment now leaves the temple and lingers on the Mount of Olives. And Ellen White says that after lingering for a period the Shekinah departed and went to heaven. The city was now desolate because the presence of God was no longer there. And I want you to notice what happened as a result, 2nd Chronicles 36 and verses 17 to 21, 2nd Chronicles 36 17 to 21 says, therefore God brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young, remember what Ezekiel chapter 9 said, this is the fulfillment, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin On the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all of its palaces with fire, and destroyed all of its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his son. Now this was this the end of the Jewish theocracy? No it wasn't. Notice that, the, that this passage ends with hope. Israel was going to receive another chance. So let's notice verse 20 again. And And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants of him and his sons, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the prophet Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her sabbaths, as long as she lay desolate, she kept sabbath to fulfill how long? To fulfill seventy years. This is happening. By the way, the captivity lasts from six o five to uh, to the year. Um, let's see, six o five to five thirty six, when the people returned to their land. Now. God in other words gave Israel a second chance, didn't He? This was not the final end, God said you're going to spend 70 years captive in Babylon and then after the captivity I'm going to take you back to your land and I'm going to give you another chance. Notice 2nd Chronicles 36 verses 22 and 23, it says there, now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that's 536 by the way BC, that's when the 70 years ended, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus king of Persia. All Now this is very interesting from a pagan king, he says All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Interesting that a pagan king would say that. And so Israel returned in 536 they started they laid the foundations to the temple but then they had so much opposition that they quit building the temple and it remained desolate from the year 536 all the way down to the year 520. And then in 520 Haggai, Zerubbabel, and uh, Zechariah and others uh, encouraged the people to once again come to the temple to start the, the rebuilding of the temple again. And through the help of the prophets they rebuilt the temple in only five years, between 520 and 515. In 515 the temple was finished. Notice Haggai chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehoshadak the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it Is this not in your eyes as nothing? You see they they built the temple after the captivity, it wasn't even the shadow of what the temple built by Solomon was. There was no Shekinah in that temple, there was no gold and silver, it was it was an ordinary temple compared to the one that had been built by Solomon. And so Haggai here is saying, you know didn't you see the temple in its former glory, the the Solomon's temple? He says isn't this temple nothing in comparison? But now I want you to notice a promise that the Jews have never been able to explain. Haggai chapter 2 and verses 6 through 9, now comes the promise. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more it is a little while I will shake heaven and earth the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and what will come? They shall come to the desire of all nations. You know another way of translating it is the desire of ages, the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. Well you know what, that temple was destroyed in the year 70 and it never was even the shadow of the temple that was built by Solomon. So the Jews today are still trying to explain how this second temple was going to have more glory than the first. Let's continue reading. It says in verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace says the Lord of hosts. Wow, this temple which was nothing compared to the temple that was built by Solomon, the Lord says this latter temple will be of greater glory than the, than the first temple, the temple that was built by Solomon. So God gave Israel an additional 70 weeks of mercy and grace. He sent them abundant messengers. He had sent messengers before the captivity, now He sends more messengers. He sends them Haggai, Zechariah, Joshua the high priest, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi, and finally John the Baptist, the twelve, the seventy. Yet when Jesus came they were oblivious to His mission. They did not really understand why they existed. And so they rejected the Messiah. So we've studied two stages of the history of Israel, the first stage is between the year 1445 at Mount Sinai and the year of the captivity 605 BC. The second stage is after the captivity in the year 536, they go back, they rebuild, and then after they've rebuilt the city, the walls, the temple, God says, I'm going to give you another chance, I'm going to give you 70 weeks, 490 years more. And that's the prophecy that we find in Daniel chapter 9. And he says, this temple, which is far inferior in your eyes to the temple that was built by Solomon, is going to be more glorious than that temple. Now how are we to understand that? Go with me to John chapter 1 and verse 14, here comes stage 3 of the history of Israel. The first stage is Sinai to the captivity, the second stage is after the captivity till the time that Jesus comes. It says in John 1 verse 14, and the Word became what, flesh and dwelt, that word dwelt is skeno'o which means tabernacled. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Doesn't this bring to mind Uh, the book of Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8 where God said make me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them, interesting. Three common words are used in Exodus 25 8 and John 1 verse 14, the word tent or tabernacle, second the word dwell and third the word among. In other words Jesus was the glory that came to be in the temple. Now the Jews love to brag about Solomon's temple, but it's interesting to see what Jesus said. Luke chapter 12 verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now when you look at the parallel passage to this one, Matthew chapter 12, And verse 42 you find that Jesus says about Himself, it adds to what we found in the Gospel of Luke, One greater than Solomon is here. So who is that greater glory that was going to come into the temple? It was none other than Jesus Christ Himself. Did Jesus several times during His ministry teach in the temple courts? Yes He did. Was He opposed by the religious leaders in those temple courts? He most certainly was. The Shekinah that came to dwell in that second temple was none less than Jesus Christ. We saw His glory, the glory as the ever only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He fulfilled the prophecy of Haggai the temple was more glorious because Jesus Himself the Shekinah came to dwell in the temple. Towards the end of His life Jesus according to Luke 19 37 and 38 descended the Mount of Olives for the last time before His death. Let's read about it, He's actually advancing from the Mount of Olives to the Golden Gate which is on the eastern side of Jerusalem to go through the Golden Gate into the city and then into the temple. It says then, as He was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all His mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In verses 47 and 48, Jesus, we're told that Jesus entered the temple, He was the Shekinah in the temple, and I want you to notice the response of the religious leaders to this glorious Shekinah in the temple. It says there in verses 47 and 48, and He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to what? Sought to destroy Him. And were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to Him. In fact do you know that many times during this last week of the life of Jesus, Jesus went into the temple and taught in the temple and discussed and answered questions that people asked and debated with the religious leaders. He was in the temple all the time during this last week, He was the Shekinah in the temple. Let's notice the last time that Jesus entered the temple. Matthew 21 verses 12 and 13, there's some very important details here that we need to take into account. It says there, then Jesus went into what? The temple temple of God. At this point was the temple still the temple of God? Yes Yes, it was. It says then Jesus went into the temple of God, is He going to do a work of separation now? Oh, this is a work of judgment, absolutely. And drove out, He's cleansing the temple, He's cleansing the sanctuary, if you please. And drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who sold doves. And He said to them, It is written, My house, was that His house at that point of time? You better believe it. He He went into, according to this, the temple of God, and He called it My house. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And in the next three chapters, Jesus the Shekinah teaches in the temple in person. And his main theme in those three chapters is discussing the apostasy and rebellion of Israel. Interesting. And what the result would be. He actually gave a series of parables, now I'm not going to mention the parable of the fig tree because that's going to be our next study, so we're going to skip from where it says uh, John the Baptist all the way down to uh, where you find um, Matthew 21 verses 18 and 19, we'll come back to that again. Let's go down to where it says Matthew 21 verses 33 to 43, how many chances did God give Israel? Three. The first is before the captivity, the second is all of the messengers that He sent after the captivity, the third is when Jesus Christ Himself comes. That is the last resort, and you're going to see it in this parable. Notice the parable of the vineyard that Jesus gave. Uh, it's found in Matthew chapter 21 and verses 33 to 43. Jesus says, hear another parable there was a certain landowner, I'm going to interpret for you, this is God the Father, who planted a vineyard, the vineyard is the city of Jerusalem, and set a hedge around it, this is the law, dug a wine press in it and built a tower which is the temple, Ellen White gives all of this interpretation of, of, the, of the terminology that is used, and he leased it to vine dressers, who would the vine dressers be? Israel, And went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants, this is the first chance that they get, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one and stoned another. That's before the captivity, that's stage one. Again, what does again mean? this is a second chance, again He sent other servants, and by the way this is Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, John the Baptist, etc. more than the first, and they did likewise to them. That's the second chance, right? And now notice, then last of all He sent His Son. Are you catching the picture? The third stage is He sends His very own Son and he says they will respect my son but when the vine dressers saw the son they said among themselves this is the heir come let us kill him and seize his inheritance so they took him and cast him out of the vineyard was Jesus cast out of Jerusalem did he die out of Jerusalem he most certainly did they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him and now Jesus asked the question, therefore when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They still haven't caught on to what Jesus is teaching here. Oh, they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably, and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Now Jesus is going to make his point. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then he makes a prediction, this is a future prediction, the tense of the verb is future. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you And given to a nation bearing the fruits thereof, the word nation there is the word ethne, it's the very same word that is translated Gentiles in the books of Acts, unfortunately it's translated nation, you get the impression that this is some some nation that God is going to choose like the Jewish nation, no, this is referring to the Gentiles, the word nation is ethne, and by the way in the New Testament there are two key words for people, one is the word laos, where the word Laodicea, Laodicea comes from, and that is the word that is used mostly for God's faithful people, Laos. But when it speaks about the Gentiles, those who are outside the covenant community of Israel, those are called ethne. And so Jesus is saying here that the kingdom would be taken away from the Jewish nation as a nation, and would be given to a people would be given to the Gentiles who would bear the fruits thereof. Incidentally, do you know that there's a parable of Jesus, the parable of a man who went into the uh, into the uh, uh, party, the wedding party, without a garment? You remember that? He went to the supper without the garment on. You know, there you have also the same message. You have messengers that are sent out; they reject the message. Then the fatted calf is killed, that represents the death of Christ, and then other messengers are sent, and they treat them likewise, and then the the king is filled with anger and he burns their city, which is what? the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Now notice Matthew 23 and verses 29 to 33. Here Jesus says, Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you build the tombs of the prophets, and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves, that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Notice that the measure is being what? The cup is being filled up. When the cup is full, that's it. Remember the, the cup of the Amorites is not yet full, in other words the probation had not, had not closed. So Jesus is saying the cup is filling up, and then He says to them, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? But now I want you to notice something, even then probation did not close for the Jews. Even after Jesus was crucified, probation did not close for the Jewish nation. Jesus says the cup is almost full, Jesus gave them three and a half additional years. And You say, how do we know that from Scripture? Notice Matthew 23, 34 to 36, and notice the tense of the verbs. Jesus is saying, this is just a few days before His death, He says, Therefore indeed, I send you, and it's a really a future tense, I send you wise men, scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Let me ask you who were the prophets that were sent to them? You know who the last prophet of Israel was? Stephen. He was the last to receive a prophetic vision of Jesus at the right hand of God. Who were the wise men? The seven deacons were men full of wisdom. Let me ask you who was beaten according to this who was beaten in the synagogues, scourged in the synagogues? How about Peter and John for starters at the beginning of the book of Acts? Who persecuted from city to city? Saul of Tarsus. So Jesus is saying, I'm still gonna send more messengers after I die on the cross. But then notice what Jesus says, Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, some of them you will scourge in your synagogues, and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So did the punishment come right away? Did probation close right away when Jesus was crucified? Absolutely not. He's saying, I'm going to send you more messengers. But you're going to do the same thing to them. And then, here comes the interesting part. Then, Jesus departs the temple. I want you to notice what we find in Matthew chapter 23 and verses 37 and 38. This is the culmination of the speech of Jesus in the temple, after this He will no longer enter the temple. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Was He speaking about the city or are we speaking about the apostate people in the city? The people. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And now listen to this. See, your house is left unto you desolate. What change do you see here? When Jesus went into the temple upon his triumphal entry, it was the temple of God and he called it my house. And then Jesus teaches in the temple courts and he's rejected. And so now Jesus departs the temple and He says, your house is left unto you desolate. And guess where He went next? He went and sat on the Mount of Olives. Do you remember the Old Testament story? This is repeating the Old Testament story. Only this is ultimately the fulfillment. Notice Matthew 24 and verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple right after He said those words, the Shekinah now is gone, and His disciples came up to show Him the buildings of the temple, and now what does Jesus talk about? He's rejected in the temple, those people He pronounces a sentence upon those people, the Shekinah abandons the temple, and then He speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem, because it no longer has a Shekinah. Notice Matthew 24 2 and 3, and Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon, uh, here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now you remember the word abomination and desolation in the Old Testament? What was it that led to the desolation? the abominations that were being committed. Now notice Matthew 24 and verse 15. Matthew 24 and verse 15. This verse has a double fulfillment. We already studied this at the very beginning of our class. The first fulfillment is with literal Jerusalem. The second fulfillment of course has to do with the Sunday law at the end of time. You see with Jerusalem the Roman standards had an eagle with a sun wreath upon them. And so when those Christians inside saw them put their standards in the ground as a signal that, that Jerusalem was going to be conquered by them, they saw the signal of the eagle with outspread wings and the golden wreath which represented the orb of the sun, they were to flee. At the end of time it's not a sun wreath, at the end of time it is the Sunday. Now notice what it says in Matthew 24 verse 15. Therefore when you see the what, the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads let him understand. What was that abomination of desolation? Luke 21 verse 20 explains what the historical fulfillment of this was, the first fulfillment of this. The abomination of desolation was because of the abominations in the city, because of the rejection of the Messiah, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed by the Roman armies, and so it says in Luke 21 and verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem what surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Are you following me or not? Does this have a certain finality to it? Is God going to restore the Jewish nation once more? No, especially is He going to restore them in 1948 in disobedience? You know God God always restored Israel to the land when they repented. In fact in the chapter in Deuteronomy 28 where it speaks about the blessings and curses of the covenant, God made it clear that if Israel repented when they were in captivity, He would bring them back to His land, but He does not bring them back to the land in disobedience. It has to be a repentant people. That would be brought once again to their land is Jerusalem today repentant it is not it has not received Jesus as the Messiah in Luke 19 41 to 44 we find these words of Jesus Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives and he's coming to the temple for the last time it says now as he drew near he saw the city and wept over it saying if you had known even you especially in this your day The things that make for your peace but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the hour of your visitation. What does that mean you did not know the hour of your visitation? It means you did not know that your Messiah was in your midst, that's why Jerusalem was destroyed. So we have three stages folks in the history of Israel. Number one they were taken out of captivity in Egypt, they made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. Apostasy came in for 800 years and they were taken captive to Babylon for 70 years as a result. Stage two was when they were restored after the captivity, the city, the temple and the walls and the government were reestablished. Seventy weeks of probation were given to the nation of Israel, messengers were sent galore, this was their second chance, but instead of sharing the gospel with the world and preparing the world for the coming of Messiah, they shut themselves within themselves and they became legalistic. Stage three Is when Israel rejected the last resort you know in the parable it says and last of all he sent his son does that have a certain finality about it? last of all he sent his son what more could he have done for the nation of Israel now don't misunderstand me there are many Jews within Israel that are God's true people because they have received Jesus so we're not saying that God rejected all of the Jews, far, that, far be it from us to say something like that. Individually, just like in any other nation, the Jews can embrace the Messiah and they can be saved. But as God's chosen nation to share the gospel with the world and prepare them to receive the Messiah, the plan for the Jewish nation has closed, because they failed to fulfill their mission. One last point, do you know that the sin that was committed by the Jewish nation is the same sin that is committed by the Christian world at the end of time? Let's notice that, and I struggled with this for a while, I think I mentioned this in one of my previous uh, presentations, Uh, you know I said well this sounds like two different sins, but when you look at it, it really is the same sin. Ellen White in great controversy 22 and 23 says, the great sin of the Jews was the rejection of Christ. The great sin of the Christian world would be the rejection of the law of God. The foundation of His government in heaven and earth, the precepts of Jehovah would be despised and set at naught. What was the great sin of the Jewish nation? It's rejection of Christ. What will be the great sin of the Christian world? the rejection of God's holy law. Now you say how can this be the same sin? It's a similar sin in this sense, the law is a reflection of the character of Christ. So how can you say I love Jesus but I don't love His law? If the law is a reflection of who Jesus is, and Jesus is the embodiment or the incarnation of the law, you cannot say, oh I love Jesus but I hate the law. So it's the same sin to reject the law which is the reflection of Christ's character as it is to reject Jesus who is that law in living flesh. Are you understanding me? In church, not in Adventist churches, but in non adventist churches you hear that the law was nailed to the cross, that no one can keep it, that it was for the Jews, that we're not under law but under grace, that we are not under the letter but we're under the Spirit, that all you need to do is believe, but God does not expect you to keep the law, but then these people talk out of both sides of their mouth, because they say no not the law, the law was nailed to the cross, but then they want to legislate the law from Washington. In the political arena you hear a different tone, just by way of example you have political candidates wooing evangelicals, trying to get them over to their side. You know people want government to legislate traditional marriage, sanctity of life, anti-pornography, they want to post the Ten Commandments in the courtrooms, they want to do all of these things by legislation but folks legislation will not cut it, because the Ten Commandments are there in the Bible, you can put the Ten Commandments on a monument in every courtroom in the United States and it will make no difference, because the law needs to be written in the human heart, and when it's written in the human heart then it will affect behavior, it does not affect behavior when it's legislated, it affects human behavior when God takes His law and He writes it in our hearts. I delight to do your will. Your law is written in my heart. Listen folks, the difference between the two covenants is not that the old covenant had law and the new covenant has grace. That is a false dichotomy. You see the old covenant had law and grace. Israel saw the law only on tables of stone. Moses had the law written on his heart, because you could see the glory of Christ on his face. God wanted for Israel what Moses had, but they said no cover the glory, we don't want that glory, we want Moses, but we don't want the glory. They were saying basically we want the written writings of Moses, but we don't want Jesus. And the same sin is being committed by the Christian world today, by rejecting the law of God which is a reflection of the character of Jesus Christ. And let me say, what the churches want to do today is they want the government to fix what they broke. Because the pastors have preached so many times, you're not under law, you're under grace, they preached so many times that the law was nailed to the cross that people now believe it, and they feel like they don't have to keep the law. Are you following me? So basically the sin of the Christian world at the end of time is going to be the same sin as was committed by the Jewish nation, but I praise the Lord that in Jerusalem there was a faithful remnant, and when the city was destroyed they escaped. Just like in the Old Testament there was a ceiling. not all were committing the abominations, and they escaped when Jerusalem was destroyed. You know when they saw the signal when Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70, when the Christians, those who really embraced Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, saw the sign, were told that they fled. And of course they prayed that their flight not, might not be in winter, probably because it was going to be terribly cold, or on the Sabbath day. Interesting that in Matthew 24 where it speaks about God's people having to flee to the mountains, it says pray that your flight will not be on the Sabbath. They were to pray that in the times of the Apostles and that will be the prayer of God also at the end of time, because the Sabbath is still God's day of rest. And so God has rejected the literal Jewish nation, but He has not rejected His people. He has not rejected His spiritual Israel. He has not rejected true Israel, because true Israel is composed of those who have accepted Jesus Christ. If you are Christ's you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In other words a Jew is not defined by the blood they have or by the name that they have or by where they live, it is defined by their personal relationship with Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. So let me ask you, where is Israel going to be at the end of time? In the Middle East? No, Israel is going to be where Jesus is, and Jesus is where two or three are gathered in His name. It's not complicated. It's very simple. May we be among those of spiritual Israel who know Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. This media was brought to you by Audioverse